Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creative... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hi there, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to The Stages Podcast, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. Terence O'Connell is a theatre maker who has contributed extensive original works to the canon of Australian theatre. He's also a director of vast ability, demonstrated in his work constructing and staging works of theatre, comedy, circus, cabaret and music. I caught up with Terence in Melbourne, where he was mid-season with a new work titled Mrs Prime Minister. He was also in developmental stages for a musical adaptation of the classic memoir I Can Jump Puddles. He is a prolific creative who thrives in the rehearsal room. I'd not met Terence before, but was spellbound by his knowledge, opinion and anecdote from a life in the theatre. His career as a dresser for Reg Livermore, his staging of the cult musical Bad Boy Johnny and the Prophets of Doom, and his neighbour who acted as a sort of Auntie Mame, escorting him in his first forays to the theatre as a young boy. Terence was amused by the term theatre maker, but that's indeed what he does. Writing, directing, dramaturgical work, producing, conceiving, making compelling theatre. You'll see exactly in this inspiring episode featuring my guest, Terence O'Connell. Terence O'Connell, thank you for joining the, uh, uh, the cast, the podcast of Stages. My pleasure. (laughs) <laughs> and thanks for listening. You've been listening to us. Yeah, I have. I have. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's nice to sit down with you at, at long last. Oh, thank you very much. I'm going to start with a ballpark question. Uh, you've come into some money, a million dollars. What would you do with it? I would probably take a couple of years off to really spend time and energy and uh, create create some of the shows that I've got on my... I always have, like, a list of ten shows I want to write or make, and I would probably do that because, largely speaking, the work that I create isn't funded to any reasonable degree, so there's always, um, you know, pressures. (laughs) Because as well as being a prolific director, you are um, a theatre maker. You've created all sorts of theatrical experiences in your many decades. Yeah, I I, I have. And, you know, this new phrase, theatre maker. I, I, I just um, I did a show uh, for 10 days on the island this year 
called One Crowded Hour and um, I read in the publicity material, you know, director and theatre maker and no one had ever called me that um, trendy epithet before. <laughs> well, it seems to sum up what you're doing. You know? I mean, if you're coming up with a concept and then yeah, putting I, it all together. That's that's right. And, you know, when I first started directing, it's the, it's the fearlessness of youth because I'd never written a thing or, you know, made a show or anything. And then suddenly it was like, hey, kids, let's make a show. And so I went and said, oh, it's, yes, it's on in three weeks, you know, and we would sit down and bang out songs and a script and the Mickey, concept and do it. Mickey and Judy. Well, indeed, and yeah. with complete fearlessness. And then, you know, I had that little theatre company in Wagga in New South Wales and... Um, that's what we did. We made, I mean, we did Shakespeare and we did Australian plays and a whole lot of stuff, but we did do a considerable number of new little musicals. And they would go on, they were as successful as the Shakespeare's or anything else. Play building, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, indeed it is, you know. And I think um, after I left there and, you know, went to Sydney thinking, oh, you know, after three years in Wagga, I'll be such a success in Sydney, which I wasn't. Um, but um, that that fearlessness went away. You know, you start, oh, can I, you start questioning yourself. Can I do that? And how do you write lyrics? And how all those things that one just, I don't know, naturally and organically knew be, became quite difficult. And in a way, I left that alone for such a long time and although I'm coming back to it now. <laughs> the theatre is becoming more and more expensive to make. Yeah. Um, and also in this very unsta- unstable climate that we've been going through for now entering its, its third year. It's a, it's a precarious industry at the best of times. How is the industry going to withstand this COVID storm? Um, going to- I, I'm not really sure, and I know, you know, you always read those things about, you know, the the fabulous invalid and all of that business. But I think it's I think it's going to be difficult. I mean, I, I just particularly where we are now, at the start of the third year of this, I'm not really sure. I think it. I think. Um, uh, well, hopefully, the big commercial uh, projects can survive, um, although they seem to be falling over like crazy at the moment but I think it's it's harder for the smaller projects it is difficult because they're on a very fine line anyway you know I mean I think uh, you 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 can't help but one project of mine now I'm really trying to turn into a film or a tv project because I I'm losing faith in whether it'll ever make it back to the stage or not because it's complicated and potentially it's a bit expensive um, to tour Um, and so one can't help but be looking at other ways those big commercial musicals have brand recognition yeah they do they do we all know yeah indeed indeed and it's a different world really because largely speaking they're directed by American or English creative teams. I mean, it's a very rare 
thing where someone actually directs one of those productions. And I, you know, in a way, I totally understand that. If I wrote a worldwide hit, I'd want it to be exactly the way I wanted it to be. All around the world, yeah. Yeah, that, you know, and so I, I, I get that. Um, but I think it's it, for the next sort of level down, it's quite difficult, I think. And I mean, well, that's certainly the, the challenge at the moment about finding an audience for new... I mean, I, I think what I do, for example, is not um, really experimental in any way. My work is quite commercial, um, I, I guess. I was in the running <laughs> to take over a subsidised theatre company. It was out of myself and someone else. And um, I don't know why, I've never forgotten this. And when it came right down to the wire, and I went for the last interview, the person said to me, I won't say who it was, but said to me, well, Terence, you know, I think you're a little bit too commercial for us. And it was such a slap across the face because that uh, the person who got it actually almost brought that company to its knees, you know. I mean, I don't think I'm... I think, oh, what's a world beater here? But, you, you know, you, you, I always think of the audience or the potential audience, you know. I, I think what's the point otherwise? And the box office comes into that equation also, C- doesn't it? Completely it does, completely it does. And so many of... Um, to try to get your work, original work seen is uh, very difficult. It's very difficult to get producers to come and see the work, you know. Mainly, not all, but mainly they're not interested, you know. Well, you started the year with an inspired project, I think, Mrs Prime Minister. Tell me about that. Um, Mrs Prime Minister is a little show about seven um, women who were married to Australian prime ministers between uh, 66 and 96. And uh, they each have a big hero song, like Sonia McMahon's song is That Dress, and it's the story of the dress and when she wore it to Washington and what happened. Um uh, Zara Holt's song is called On Cheviot Beach and it's about that day on the 27th of December when uh, Harold Holt drowned at the beach and a lot of the songs set on the beach. Um, so they each each of the women have a, a big hero sort of song. It's not really a book musical. I don't know what you call it, but um, we we just managed to get three shows of it in during the last... Well, we're out of lockdown now, but one of the last lockdowns. And we did it at the Melbourne Cabaret Festival and had a really a great response. And it's not... I think it's in a process of development still. Like, um, I've changed it a bit. It's got a new finale song now and it's got some new dialogue and it's got a new running order. So, you know, every time we actually do it, I'll probably... So I'm, I'm not using it as a workshop, but I am trying to develop it. I think it's got, you know, John Thorne, who wrote the great music for it, always says to me, oh, Terence, it's got legs, it's got legs, you know. And so we're hoping it will. It's got a lot of appeal 
to women particularly um, and uh, it's not really political or even oh I suppose maybe it is but it it's not about the dismissal necessarily, you know, but there are little moments in it, like which I just think are incredible. Like when Tammy Fraser walked into the lodge for the first time, this is true. There was an envelope on a side table in the hall addressed to her and she opens it and it says, best wishes in your new home and I hope you're very happy here, etc. with your family. Regards, Margaret Whitlam. Now... That's a great little moment, you know? And so it's sort of mainly a little bit like that. It's sort of about little, mainly about little intimate moments, you know? Um, Zara Holt had in her will that when she was buried, when she died, she'd be buried in the cemetery, the closest one to Cheviot Beach, so she could be near him. So, you know, in some ways it is about their relationship to their husbands, I suppose. And, you know, a few of those husbands were absolute <laughs> bastards. Um, but, yeah, so it's it's intimate, I think, and um, we're hoping it's going to go on. So we're doing it again this year and pitching it around and um, I'm hoping that we might do it in Sydney. It probably won't tour with the original cast I wouldn't think most of the folks have got family or other commitments or whatever or it's not really financially viable Um, but um, yeah there's a few great people in Sydney who would be great in it who are interested so we're going to keep on developing it Um, you know it's the it's the three women and then there's a little trio called the Adelaide Avenue Trio, which is the Adelaide Avenue is the address of the lodge. Um, so it's six women. I think it's got great potential. It's a great premise, I think, because a lot of those women, are, are, are those leaders, are confidants. I mean, no, in, completely. In, in, in a marriage. Completely. You know, and wife, there's the pillow talk. And yeah, all, com- all of that completely. And, so. and they, as well, like... Um, uh, Hazel Hawke's song is all the melody of it's all based around a Mozart concerto because that's what she played, mm. you know, and that's what she played with the Sydney Symph when she was that guest player. But she put the piano, found the old original piano and had it reconditioned and put it back into the lodge, you know, whereas. Um, for example, Zara had put in shocking pink walls and chandeliers <laughs> and uh, a white glazed ceiling into the bedroom, you know. So they, they, they're all interesting personalities, all of them, mm-hmm. you know. It's great to have that female perspective. Yeah, I think, I, I think it is. And I think that's what uh, the people, as I say, especially women, have responded to and said, oh, I didn't know that or that's interesting when... She did that, or, you know, Margaret Whitlam, when Gough was, I I think in the latter years, when Gough would be giving a big speech, she'd sit in the front row, you know, with her walking stick, and if he was going on too long, like she'd hit the stick on the ground, come and finish up, love, it's going on too long, you know. So um, all, all of that I found quite interesting. So I've got a, you know, a huge stack of books about 
you know, the uh, some of the women are ha- a bit hard to get, like um, Anita Keating, and well, she's not the only. Uh, Tammy Fraser is still alive, but she's 87 or something now, I think. But um, all the rest of them have passed away. Uh, but so it is sort of interesting. And Anita doesn't do all that much. She's, apart from the fact she's a great musical director, um, but she has a big reveal. It's when her song happens at the end, it's, I think it's just great, you know. So Jeanette doesn't get an aria. No, <laughs> but that's interesting as well, you know, because... In the end, I just had to make decisions about which... And I, I did want it to be... I didn't want it to be, you know, Labour women good and Liberal women bad. I didn't want it to be that. Um, but it, it just so happened these seven women all followed each other into the lodge, you know, over the those 30 years. And there was something about that period that was a little bit interesting sociologically if that's the word you know a period of change and a period of new ideas to some degree because originally when I pitched the idea to John to get him to write the show write the music for the show you know we were talking about oh yes we'll have the whole history of all the women I thought no no god you know and I, I there's certain periods of history that don't really interest me anyway you know but all of these women are interesting but no I drew the line at Jeanette Howard (laughs) (laughs) another success you had was minefields and miniskirts which also offered the female perspective from uh, the Vietnam War yeah you enjoy working with all female casts well creating women's stories I have I have done a lot I have no idea why that uh is um, but I have done quite a few shows with uh, female cast, you know, including the revival of Steaming at the Comedy Theatre for Paul Dainty, and um, I did uh, Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, uh, quite a few projects, but Minefields is very special to my heart. I, I loved it, and um, it was very really to do with um, Aubrey Miller and the great Jill Smith that that got on and it was interesting because um, I was in the foyer of the then Playbox as it was called and I noticed that all of the upcoming projects were very male orientated you yeah. know they were and I thought oh maybe there's a space here for a female show and it was interesting because I'd I'd had the idea for a while and I'd been dragging it around and a couple of the responses I got from producers like one producer said to me Terence no one is interested in seeing a lot of old boilers on stage true and then another producer said to me yes I will fund it I will actually give you money to develop this but you have to make them all young Right, and so it it wasn't going to get on, but I took it to Aubrey and Jill, and it just somehow was right for that season. And um, the first time I took it in there, and like you know, everyone's short of money, and um, I don't know if it was Aubrey or Jill, it was probably Aubrey said, "Look, we'll definitely do it. We'll do it if you can make it three women." I said, "I can't. It's got to be five, or I can't do it. I just I know how 
it's going to work and no. And then within two weeks they said yes. And it, you know, it was just a great experience. I mean, I think it almost, we just did two previews and it virtually sold out. Did you, know? did you have a, a completed text when you went in or were you developing that? With the, I was developing it. Yeah. Um, and uh, if I did it now, I would probably do it differently. But um, I decided to have a... I thought, oh, well, I'll have an entertainer and I'll have a nurse and I'll have a, a, a journalist um, and I'll have the wife of a Vietnam vet, etc. So, the, the, you know, they were sort of composite characters. So I knew that. And I also knew I wanted... Well, I guess because I was thinking a bit commercially as well. I think, oh, well, you know... There's all those great songs of that period, you know, Joni Mitchell and Joan Baez, etc. And I did want to cast singers, so I did cast Deborah Byrne and, you know, Wendy Stapleton and Robin Arthur, all these great people who could sing like crazy. And uh, so once they said yes, I did really start developing. And we did... Um, no, I don't think we had a workshop, I think. Um, I think we just started rehearsing and did it, you know, um, so the idea came from uh, that, that book by Siobhan yeah it, by Siobhan McHugh and yep. um, it, it, because I'd done this show years ago called Sisters which was about women in the the women who were slaughtered at Banker Beach in the Second World War or were in prison camps um, I think someone rang me or something and said look you should do this as a show and I read it and straight away I went oh yes this would be a great show and then a friend of mine negotiated to, you know, buy the rights to it, um, the performance rights to it. And, you know, it's it's 15 years ago now, I can't believe it, but we, we did a sold-out season at the Playbox and then toured for Playbox Malthouse almost for a year. Like, it, it just virtually sold out everywhere it went. And up until very recently until lockdowns and COVID it's been performed by I don't know how many community theatre companies and schools and you know so it's had a really good life and you know I'm hoping one day I'll do it again. The Theatre of War seems to be a backdrop to a few shows that you've done. Yeah it does I I again I have no idea and that's very interesting Theatre of War because it there's something well, not theatrical, but people in these stories are so vibrant somehow. There's so much life there and so much, uh, oh, I don't know, event in the stories that just... Yeah, so I'm not really... There's heroes and villains. Yeah, there are. And I'm, I'm not really into the, you know, the the blood of it or the, you know, the graphic sort of nature of it not that I would hide that either but I am into how it affects people and you you can still see now the survivors for example of the Vietnam War who are in this country how deeply affected they are by it all these years later so it's got great um, resonance and great uh, and great stories really I mean with um minefields because I'd made them composite characters and because I'd some of them I'd written pre them going to Vietnam you know stories and incidents that 
didn't happen really just to give them a bit of a backstory and sometimes I wrote what happened to them after where I'd put two stories together and I when I realized that the actual women like the real women would be coming to the show I was suddenly terrified going oh no they're going to they're going to hate this and they're going to and do you know they they weren't at all I mean a lot of them came on more than one occasion um particularly in Sydney, where a lot of them were based, and some of them were quite, well, getting on to be elderly even then, but they were just fantastic and they loved it so much and they loved their story being told and they liked the direct address of it. Uh, You know, I think um, I've sort of been using that quite a lot in... So much as they do it all the time in Mrs. Prime Minister, they speak directly to the audience. And I know quite a few theatre people think that it's not drama or it's not a play, but I'm not. I'm not saying I'm a playwright. I'm sort of making shows about certain theatre things. Yeah, that, thank you very much. <laughs> and putting music underneath them and giving it a, an atmosphere. And so that that very quality of speaking directly to an audience seems to appeal to well it seems to appeal to the audience who like to come to see my shows anyway yeah. you know i know you're developing um, i can jump puddles into a musical yeah how, how do you give life to an iconic australian novel like that well that's very that's very interesting because I, also because of lockdown etc we actually been working on it i only realized the other day because we're about to do a new development with all the none of the adults but all the child performers like doing most of the kids material in it um and it was quite difficult because I you know I must have read the book 50 times now or something and I knew uh, the book's very episodic and it's great it's great I mean it is a novel but I do think of it more as a memoir or something and I had to try and, well, like anyone who adapts anything to, into a show, uh, a book musical to a degree, you've got to make changes. And I feel like now we've made good changes. It's quite, um, oh, I wouldn't say it's heavy, but it's not It's not a kiddie musical. I'm not saying it isn't for kids because kids are amazing and it's not graphic in any sense but it is quite a lot of it's fun too but it is quite serious it actually tackles which is inherent in the book Mm. but it actually tackles a whole lot of contemporary issues climate change and disability rights you know you can go on and all of those things are very locked into the into the story um and uh so I'm very lucky to work on it. I mean, so we're doing a... It, it's been going to go on twice um, before, but has been stopped by COVID. And um, maybe in the long run, we'll consider that a virtue, you know. So I'm, I've got, during this month, uh, once I've done some tweaks on uh, Mrs Prime Minister... I'm really having a look at it again and trying to move it on a bit. It's very, 
I'm wanting it to be, even though it's, I guess it's a period show, I'm wanting it to be very fast-moving, very contemporary in a sense in its sort of storytelling. Um, yeah, and it's a, it's a beautiful story and uh, we need incredible, incredible kids to be in it, you know. We just um, auditioned, I don't know, 80 kids or something and, I mean, some of them were incredible and there, at one point there were, because the kids in it, well, they can be older than they appear, but they're meant to be sort of from eight to maybe 18, you know, would be the tops. And too tiny, because what we, we sent them music and guide tracks and uh, lyrics, etc., and got them to uh, sing, learn an upper harmony and a lower harmony in the in the little songs, you know. And th- these two tiny little girls, like tiny, I really don't know how old they were, but they looked minute, you know. They came on, they were brilliant, like just brilliant. They could sing the harmonies, they were just had so much attitude, they were great. It's not a dance show, but they've got to be able to move. There's a big huge fight scene in it. There's a big race scene where the boy suddenly is showing uh, that he's got the first stage of polio. Um, so there are all these quite big movement sequences in it. Um, and they've got to have a sense of, you know, contemporary movement. These kids are great. So that's very exciting. And we've slightly got the difficulty or the challenge because Xavier Brower, who wrote the music, um, the lead boy, Alan Marshall, in the first act is a boy soprano. So they're already on the... You know, you don't know whether they're going to, their voice is going to break or what, you know, I said to him, can't we stop doing this? And because it's really interesting because it's two years since we did the last workshop, the boy who played Alan Marshall in that workshop is now coming to audition again for one of the other roles, but of course his voice is broken now. <laughs> and there's all those considerations with children also. You hear those um, gavroches from Les Mis yeah. who, you know, they've got three months and then they're out. No, absolutely. So, And it is quite difficult because they're big roles, you know, and some of it's very arduous. You know, when when he's first diagnosed and they, they don't really know a lot about polio and the doctor says to the mother well you've just got to put him on the kitchen table and push his legs down every day and there's a scene where you see him on the kitchen table with his poor mother trying to force his legs down straight you know so the boys they've got to confront a lot you know so it's it's um it'll be a challenge for the young actor you know you're a Sydney boy, aren't you? Yeah, I am. Grew up there. Mm. What sort of boy were you? you? Were you a performer when you were a kid? No, I wasn't a... I might have dreamed about it. I No, I wasn't a performer. In fact, I didn't. we didn't have anything like that at the Catholic school I went to, you know, so it was all football and cricket, etc. No, I didn't really have any connection with it, but this is very odd 
there was a lady who lived next door to us and she was a lady in black, like she worked at David Jones. And I remember she was called, or they used to refer to her as a floor walker because she had a, she was always, you know, I occasionally would go in and see her at work and she had the dressed in the black, but she had a flower on her lapel, which the ordinary run-of-the-mill... But the role was just to check on... All the others, right. But what was interesting was that... um, she was what was called then a spinster lady, you know. But so she must have got comps for things or something. I don't know, but I presume she got comps for things because of her work at David Jones or something, right? And so she used to take me to all these things. And not necessarily, I don't actually remember going to see much theatre with her, but I did see incredible performers, you know, Thelonious Monk and Dusty Springfield and uh, I saw the Judy Garland concert at the stadium, you know, and I must have been very young. Um, This might be all fancy now, so long ago, but I I sort of picture myself in my school uniform with my long (laughs) socks. But she used to take me as her plus one, you know, and we'd go to premieres of films and stuff. So... I certainly saw a lot of live performance through her, you know, and... Um, so this is you in primary school or secondary yeah, school? Yeah, the, the end of primary school, right, right. mainly. So entering adolescence. Yeah, that's yeah. right, that's right. And so I would go and see all the... Like in credits, I said, like, Thelonious Monk, you know, what does a 12-year-old know about Thelonious Monk? But, you know, Dave Brubeck, I remember we saw, and all these incredible things. And some, I remember some of the things were actually in nightclubs. I didn't know children were allowed in those. It was a bit <laughs> Auntie Mamish or something. Yeah. But um, So, you know, for the few years we lived in that house, that used to happen. Pretty soon after I left school by a series of accidents that I actually don't really recall the accident, I started being a dresser on big musicals. And I did that for about three years. And I was sort of starting to do little bits on television. And I was, you know, I was, you know, quite a pretty boy. And so I was doing, you know, I do television commercials and, you know, a bit of fashion parade and all of this sort of stuff. But I was dressing at night. And um, was your, your first one was Funny Girl, I believe, with the male chorus. I, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. That's correct. And uh, I re- the thing I remember about that was um, that was the first one I got. And I'd never been even backstage. Like, I didn't know what it was like or anything, you know. And they said you know, you're dressing the male chorus. And I'm sure someone uh, was showing me what to do. But um, I remember walking up this big, or this is how I remember it anyway, walking up this big circular staircase and had one of those sort of metal doors that you, I think you slid it open or something. And I remember looking at these two rows of men at mirrors all with what appeared to be quite extravagant makeup on (laughs) all in like silk gowns and stuff and here am I in my shorts you know being the dresser and um but it was great it was a great vantage point to observe oh no it was honest it was fantastic and I must have sort of been okay doing it because um 
I was promoted to being a principal's dresser pretty quickly. <laughs> so who were the principals you were dressing? Well, I didn't dress the principals in that, but principals I did dress. Um, I dressed the late Peter Adams in Sweet Charity, um, which was, you know, great. And Sweet Charity was a great experience. Um, and a little story about that is when we finished the Sydney season of Sweet Charity, that's when the that's when the casts used to travel um, interstate on trains, right? And so as a present, they bought me a, a ticket on the train with them. It was like being in 42nd Street or something, right, to go to the opening night in Melbourne. And uh, they hired me a dinner suit and a bow tie and everything, Um and I was young. I must have still been in my teens, and I'd never been to Melbourne before. And you know, your, your parents were okay with sending you. And off? my dad was uh, passed away, right. and no, it was fine. I wasn't actually li- living at home by right. then, anyway. Yeah. Um, and so I come to Melbourne, and I get taken to Florentino's for dinner before the show. Oh my lord! And see the opening night, and the next day. They got me a ticket to go walk across the road to see Half a Sixpence with Mark McManus. And then I must have seen Sweet Charity again that night and then got the train back to Sydney. But anyhow, that was that. And so um, I dressed uh, Frank Thring in Robert and Elizabeth. <laughs> How was Mr Thring? Um, terrifying. Was it? Yeah. Um, but he took a shine to me and he was very... I think he was terrifying, but because I didn't take any crap from him, excuse me, um, and I answered him back, I think he liked that. He was great because they'd had, I think they'd had various dressers who couldn't (laughs) cope. And so they rang me up and said, will you come in and, you know, if it's all right, you can be the dresser. And so, you know... Between shows, go up. To, I remember go up to the local RSL or whatever it was with he and June Bronhill and Dennis Quilly and you know have a Palmer and chips or whatever it was. Um, no, but he was great and he, you know, he lived quite near me and um, he used to after the show sometimes uh, like I'd he'd give me a lift. Um, back to Elizabeth Bay because that's where he was staying and I think people thought there was something weird about that but there wasn't and um, sometimes I don't, I don't think I even drank then and i just sort of sit there for an hour or something and listen to him He'd be a great record too Oh, you know, yeah. it was all the Ben-Hur and the yeah. Chuck Heston and all the business, you know yeah. and it was great and, you know, as I said, you, you know, he didn't you could see how fond of certain people he was, but if there was someone he didn't like, it was terrifying. But anyhow, so I was a dresser and um, I did that for a while and I was starting to get the acting bug and um, I was on hair as a dresser. That's the last show I did. Someone told me that um, they were looking for young actors to go to the Playhouse in Perth, right, and to tour you know, do these flying tours in a little plane all over the state. And I hadn't really done all that much. And um, 
I knew the actor Max Phipps and I asked him to sort of train me for the audition, right? And boy, did he, you know, like he was absolutely brilliant. And I went into that audition almost knowing I would get it because I was so trained, you know. I remember I did something from um, Entertaining Mr Sloan and something else and I just knew it and I got the job, you know. And so I, I went to the Playhouse in Perth and I was in the touring company for a year and we would tour all over Western Australia, mainly in buses, but sometimes in a little plane that you were terrified was going to fall out of the sky. And you'd do like a show at night, like barefoot in the park, you know. And and during the day, you'd do two different kids shows and some days you'd have to pull out the high school show. So you'd have about five shows in your, literally in your head, you know. So your training is this extraordinary apprenticeship. Yeah, no, it was it was great. And look, there was, uh, I don't know whether you know this person, but the director of the company uh, was a British director called Edgar Metcalf, indeed, yeah. who was, you know, large, this sounds patronising, it's not meant to be, um, but he was brought up in the British repertory system. And, you know, he was a very kind, witty sort of person, but there was no nonsense, you know, and you were expected to know what you were doing and... Uh, you were uh, trained, you know. So in the second and third years, I got in the main company and played, you know, great roles. I was like the juvenile, I suppose they'd call it then. Um, And I mainly was a comic, played comic roles. But, you know, you played Shakespeare and you played Arthur Miller and, you know, they did a panto at the end of the year and it was in a big theatre, the playhouse, and it was great, you know, so we did that, and they would loan us out to, like, the Hole in the Wall and other theatres in Perth, if they, if we weren't cast in something, so it was great, um, you know. Yes, Hole in the Wall, another great uh, West Australian theatre company. Absolutely, absolutely, and this was in the, before they moved to the new sort of place, you know. Was, was Ray Omidai there running it? No, Ray wasn't, and I'm having a big moment now about trying to remember who was but um you know we did things there like um rooted by alex buzo and um rope by patrick hamilton and so if there were plays that had you know younger folk in it we'd get loaned out and there was one show i did called hamlet on ice which was that great show of that period and that's a show that i ended up doing quite a lot in various places because um oh I don't know because I was funny and I knew the show and uh people would say oh you know Hamilton I someone's ill can you come and do it um yeah but so it was great being in Perth and I I loved it you know and um I don't know how I managed this but um because I don't think we were getting paid that much money but um I managed after three years to you know, have enough money to go around the world trip and go to London. And that's when I started getting a bit of the idea of being a director that started being appealing to me, you know. And there you go. 
I might be jumping back in time, but the Pocket Playhouse in Sydney. Oh, my Lord. Is that before you started dressing? Is that your... Oh, yeah. No, no. Honestly, yeah, that's... um... Because I interviewed Nolene Brown last year. Oh, okay. And and she had some time at the Pocket Playhouse, too. That was an incredible place. And really, it's very difficult for me now. It's so long ago. But I literally... I went there when I was 15. And um, it was run by this incredible man called Norman McVicker. And uh, it was this tiny little, oh, you know, in Sydney, this tiny little theatre. God, you're so well researched here, Peter. Well, I, and, could, I could even go on the Doctor in the House, I, Brass Butterfly. No, that's right. The Pied Piper. Oh, this incredible. The Tea House of the August Moon. I remember getting around in those. Uh, you, I mean, you wouldn't, couldn't do it now, but, you know, playing a Japanese person, you know. <laughs> but it was incredible because um, this little, and you had to do as well. Uh, I think when I went there first, I don't think I was actually performing. I think I had to work backstage. And behind the tiny stage, you had to go up a ladder or something. And I used to operate the sound. And it was under a tin roof. And in the summer, it was literally like you were just drenched with sweat, you know. And I think gradually you were given a role if... um, Norman or Brendan thought you were good enough. And Doctor in the House was like all the young folks like me, you know, all the 15, 16-year-olds thinking they're fabulous, getting to do that. And then you, if you were lucky, you got to be in an evening show. And it was quite incredible, really, you know. And I don't even think you auditioned. I think you just... Well, I don't remember ever auditioning. I think you just went there and said you wanted to be in it and there you went, you, you could know? speak, you could move. That's right. You were the right age. No, that's right. Yeah. And um, those sort of opportunities were just incredible, really, for the time. I mean, and I think as well, it, it was a far less... I'm not saying this is a criticism, but it was a far less competitive era than it is now. Mm-hmm. Like, most people now are rightly so, relentlessly ambitious and very competitive, whereas I don't think over that whole period it felt like that. Well, the industry was very young, I mm. guess, wasn't it? And, uh, I guess so. There wasn't as much competition. No, no, that's right, that's right. And there wasn't really... There wasn't really... No training. No training. Well, certainly no music theatre training at all, you know. So you... Um, because even at... The Playhouse in Perth, they did musicals there, you know. They did Cabaret with Nancy Hayes and John Ewing. Um, they did Guys and Dolls, They, you know. And we got to be in all these musicals and you just sort of learned to <laughs> belch it out. <laughs> now you wouldn't have that opportunity, I wouldn't think. So your time overseas thing... Uh whole gamut you're in the west end i guess did you go to broadway no no No. i just i lived in london for 18 months and you know it was because you know by the time i left perth i you know i was still i don't know 22 or something maybe 23 and i thought i was pretty hot you know because you only need to go to London and get that knocked out of you. And uh, I auditioned for Godspell in the West End. 
and uh, I got called back and back and back and back and then at the last minute course didn't get it and that was the reality of that and I did like a few sort of regional things and I ended up being <laughs> I was a dresser because I, I w- was thinking oh what am I going to do you know I, uh, I, I was sort of in a few sort of experimental sort of things that just didn't pay any money and so I for a start I was a dresser on O Calcutta you know, with all the nudity, yes, you know. Yeah. And that an was... Und- an undresser. Un- an undresser. Well, you had to be... It was That was incredible as well. There are so many funny things about being a dresser on uh, Calcutta. But you got used to the nudity, like, very quickly, you know. And I did that for a while, and that was very funny and amusing. And then I was a ASM on an Alan Akebourn play called Absurd Person Singular. And, uh, you know, I was just pressing buttons and, you know, whatever. And, um, but I'd started seeing a lot of things and I met this Australian guy, Mech, on the tube one night. I don't think he was on my show, but I knew him a bit. And he said, oh, what do you want to do? I said, I'm thinking of becoming a director, but I don't really know how you do it. And he said, oh, there's this director's course at NIDA. You should, you know, give that a go. And I said, oh, Wow. And I'd never been to an institution or anything, and I applied and I got into it. And, I mean, I think that was a bit because, you know, I was an ASM on a West End play. I don't think there was much to do with my perceived talent. But anyhow, nonetheless... um, There was an interview or an audition of sorts to to get in? Yeah, we must have done it over the phone or so. I can't remember Because you were in London. Yeah, I was in London, right, and I couldn't afford to come back for it. Um... But anyhow, I got into it. This is seventy five. That's correct. And then I, um, I came back to Australia and quickly realised, oh my god, how am I going to get any money while I'm doing this course? And a friend of mine, who was the stage manager of Hair, who I knew from then, uh, the great Ken Gregory, rang me up and said, oh, do you want to be registrar on Betty Blockbuster? Right, and that will pay you because you can go to NIDA during the day and be Reg's dresser at night. And so I dressed Reg for, I don't know, six or eight months until the course became too much. I just couldn't do it anymore. Um, so that was incredible, sort of, not sort of, actually watching him every night in that show, you know. And I. Another great theatre maker. Totally. And, you know, I knew how to, what temperature to have his shower when he came off the stage. And I knew to have his gin and tonic there. And I knew, um, you know, have his clothes laid out and all this sort of stuff. And so that was a great, a great thing for me. And uh, with all respect to NIDA, and I'm sure it's a different place now, but I always say that I actually learnt more being Reg's dresser than I learnt at the venerable institution um and there were there were some without going into the NIDA story but um there were some great people there but the course wasn't was fairly new and I don't think they really knew how to do it they just knew they wanted to do it and a couple of times I actually got put into shows because they were short an actor and I don't really want to do this um 
But, uh, yeah, so I, I, I did that. I was um, did that director's course, and it was a one-year course, and, uh, um, you know, it led me, whatever I thought about in one way or another, it led me to being a director, and I probably wouldn't be a director if I didn't do that course. So what makes a good director, Terence? Oh, gee, I don't know. I think um, I'm grateful that I have been a performer, and I did continue performing for about... I don't know, the first 10 years I was a director. But I think that helps because you can relate to the cast. In a way, too, by most of the crews and stage management I work with, I say boasting, I've been quite popular with them because I've also been a crew member. I've been a dresser and I've been a follow-spot operator and I know... Uh, how to relate to all and, sorts and of people. what their roles are and the, and the pressure that yeah, they're under. that's right, so, that's right. And so um, I, I think that's true. I mean, I've had a bit of a funny career in the sense, I, you know, I don't know whether some people even think I'm a legit director, you know, but because really now I very rarely direct plays. I mean, I would like to, but I very rarely get offered them and I, so I tend to create my own projects or um, occasionally find something I'd really like to do or someone offers me an independent project. But I, I, I don't know. Sometimes I think, oh, my God, how can I keep on doing this? Um, but I do, I do like it, and I guess because what we've all been through over the last couple of years... It has made one think... I mean, I've been doing it for a long time now and uh, I'm certainly not ready to retire or even able to retire if I wanted to. And so it's sort of finding, you know, as the expression goes, new ways to dream and not be... I don't want to be in the past and I do want to be able to create new shows and new works and keep on doing that you know do you think the industry is ageist yes i do yeah i speak to a lot of performers who certainly i do acknowledge that as yeah a reason for i think um talking. i mean it's very because it's very difficult because um one doesn't necessarily you suddenly think oh yes they're being ageist because i'm older because it doesn't really occur to you but it is it is and i, I know so many great performers uh, and directors who I talk to... Of real, your, your generation. Of my generation, uh, who've given it up because there's no work for them. You know, you, you're... I mean, you know, of course one's got to be aware there's always going to be, um, you know, someone behind you who wants your job, you know. Sometimes they're even carrying a knife. But... Uh, I think it is difficult, uh, I, and I think that's a great pity. I mean, you'll see people saying, "Where are, where are the projects for older actors?" And certainly, as a director, I mean, directors now are much, much savvier than I am or ever was. Mm-hmm. You know, I wouldn't say my top quality as being a networker for example I mean I've got friends and I've known a lot of people for a long time but I'm not really 
a good networker. And I think now, in a way, you, you know, it's pretty important to be one. But also, as well, there are so many great, great young directors, and you know, the the world has changed as well. There are um, so many women directing. There never were women directing before, and so you've got to take that into account. And so, trying to find your place, and I so I guess in a way, the only the only place I can find really is creating new things because what I do is mine and no one else can do what I do in that way. Um, well, I, look, I look to London and New York and they, they celebrate people like, of course, Judy Dench and Helen Mirren. Yeah, yeah. Ian McKellen, but, but directors too, you know, oh, George, George Abbott. George, Jack, oh, Nutton, I mean, George Peter Abbott. Hall. George Abbott is one of my great heroes, you know. Uh, Jack O'Brien, you know. Uh, still working. Still working. Mm-hmm. You... You virtually, that just wouldn't happen here. You know, I, I, and again, you know, I don't want to be naming people or whatever because that's up to them, but um, I think it's a pity. But there is a certain, there is a, it comes a certain time where no matter what success you've had, it does start to stop because people go, well, and also I guess people want to refresh what they're doing, you know, uh, I did the production company in Melbourne for a decade and eventually, you know, they wanted someone else and I don't think that was because I did anything wrong or bad. My shows were... We you did 10 shows? I did 10 shows and they were very successful and, you know, worked really well and they kept on inviting me back but, of course, there becomes the time when, I, you know, someone in the organisation must think, well, we've got to give someone else a go here, you know. We can't keep... And I understand that. And there are those graduates who need to make their profession. No, they do. They do. And it is true to find your way into something like that. The only reason I ever got into the production company in the first place was that they wanted to do their playing our song and the people who owned the rights said, oh, yes, you can have the rights as long as you get Terence O'Connell to direct it. And that's how I got in there. You know, I, don't, I wouldn't have ever had that decade of work in the State Theatre. And once I did that show, uh, pretty much I got invited back year after year, you know. Um, yes, it's um, swings and roundabouts, how the industry works. Those yeah. opportunities that come up to lead to... Totally, it, yeah. totally it does. And... Um, the way you, I mean, for me, in a way, shows only come alive when I think about the performers or cast them or cast the projects because then I think, oh, yes, I, but it's going to be with them and they're going to do it and then it's a real a real project for me, you know. And I, I, I wouldn't say this all the time, but... I have been known for casting rock singers and comedians and a whole range and ensemble people and a whole range of people who wouldn't necessarily have been uh, considered to be in a legit project or whatever. I mean, that's pretty common now, you know. What about returning to vehicles? I know that you've directed Cabaret about three yeah, times. Yeah, I have, I have. How do you... 
I suppose you're working with a new creative team and new, new cast, but how do you find new ways to reinvent that show? Oh, I think when it's a great show like that, it's so, I wouldn't say easy, but it just... Every time you do it, you find more in it. It's a very, even though it's very much set in that period, it's it's very easy stylistically to to move on with that you know I, I i i would do that show in a heartbeat you know i just love it so much and every time i do it it's great whereas some other like i did um oklahoma and 42nd street at whopper for example is you know graduation shows or near graduation shows and those productions were totally new casts but they were virtual copies of the ones I'd done in Melbourne and really that's largely what was required you know you have um, a blueprint that, yeah that, that's yeah. right a blueprint and that's sometimes a good thing to have but um and cabaret but a cabaret of course you can change it I mean especially choreographically and costume wise and the sort of people who can be in it so it's great, and so I, I love that. You know, I could run the cabaret repertory company and do it for the rest of my life. I love it a lot. <laughs> Tell me about a piece called "Bad Boy Johnny in the Province okay. of Doom." I, I saw that in the nineties. Okay, mm. extraordinary piece of theatre uh, mm. created by Daniel Ebenier. Yeah, which you directed. Yeah, um, I, well, I co-directed it with Daniel, and Daniel played Father McLean, the um, principal in the show, I guess, and. Um, <clears throat> I'd known Daniel from... Um, I had a whole period where I worked for the great and sorely missed entrepreneur Wilton Morley uh, in Sydney and did some great shows for him. He had Rocky Horror Show. For he had the Rocky Horror time. Show and I did that for a long time. We, we did um, Bouncers and uh, Crystal Clear and when I was a girl I used to scream and shout. Great... And now, of course, the I'm jumping all over the place here, but the those commercial plays are now done by subsidised theatre companies, but they weren't then. Yeah. Um, but um, Bad Boy Johnny was a show that Daniel had written, and because I knew him in Sydney, and uh, mainly through Wilton and through Rocky Horror, I'd started going over to his house once or twice a week and, you know, talking to him about it, you know. <laughs> I think... Daniel's or the woman that Daniel was married to at that time yeah, used to call it um, bad boy Johnny and the prophets of booze because we would sit there and consume a lot of red wine but you know we did that for quite a while and then Danny I think was on tour here with the Rocky Horror Show I think and uh, Gary Van Egmond the entrepreneur decided to put some money into it to have a workshop, and they had a workshop of it. And I think they decided they wanted to do it, but they said, we won't do it, Daniel, unless you get another director, you know, to do it with you. You can't play the leading role and direct it. Um, And so I was flown down and saw it, and some months later um, we did it um, at the Comedy Theatre with an amazing group of people, and... 
That's such a wonderful brazen show too. Yeah, it was. The first show to sort of attack the Catholic Church. Yeah, I guess it was. I, I, I mean, I wasn't really aware of how, you know, daring I suppose it was then. And I should have been because I was brought up in that um, situation. Um, but yes, it was. And um, it had a great cast and it looked incredible, designed by Ross Wallace, like, I was just looking at some images from it the other day and the costumes and the set were unbelievable. And, and, and Nadine Garner, Steve Bastoni, Brian Mannix. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, again, like a Wendy Stapleton. Um, this great, that cast was a fusion of um, like legit, so-called legit music theatre people and rock people. Um, and it was a pretty wild ride, you know, with that... Um, going into anyone's um, details. Uh, but yes, it, it was a great experience. And um, I think, again, it's so difficult. I'm not saying it was unsuccessful. It wasn't. But it it did find... It, 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 it didn't attract the sort of mass audience everyone thought it would. It was very, you know, it had groovy video clips and it had great graphics. And, and inspired uh, by Rocky Horror too. Oh, no, to- totally, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, it was. It was inspired by all that rock theatre, really. And, of course, Daniel had been in Rocky Horror for, I don't know, years. But it was a, a great experience and, you know, the fans that loved it, loved it. It was a very culty show and probably in retrospect, it might have been, not that I had anything to do with this, but probably it might have been better not to open at the Comedy Theatre, but to try and do it somewhere smaller. Out of town trial. Or, yes, or because th- th- this is the big issue here. With new musicals. With new musicals, yeah, where if you're not in a subsidised theatre company and you've got a commercial entrepreneur, of course, well, they want to go, well, let's do it at the comedy because it's a thousand seats. And I understand that. But you, you're going to find it hard to... I mean, there are very few shows that have done that. The Boy From Oz. Uh, it's hard to think of many others. Priscilla, they've all gone through oh, of workshop stage. Yeah, to- yeah, and yeah. they've had a lot of money invested in them, a lot of money. And I think that's also the problem as well, that it is very difficult to get the workshop and the development money. And sometimes I think workshops have got to be really brilliantly put together because often, yes, you're doing the workshop, but they say, well, you know, there is a showing at the end of the week and so it's got to be a show, Terence. And so you've got all that pressure to make it into a show to impress people. So often they're really not... uh, what they should be, you know. So, I mean, I think that's the thing. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping with I Can Jump Puddles we can, because we've been so long doing it, and I don't think it's finished yet by any means, but I'm hoping that we can find a way to have that go on the right journey, as they say, to become a successful show. And, you know, as well, with all huge respect to the brilliant productions of Priscilla and The Boy From Us, but, you know... They're full of known material. Um, and in the story of original musical Australian shows, there are very few that have m- managed to work outside of the subsidy. 
you know, of course the brilliant, all the brilliant work of people like Nick Enright, mm. you know, but largely speaking that work sits within a state theatre company or whatever and, you know, they probably deserve a bigger audience than that. But uh, that is tough, but it's sort of the way of it. Uh, I don't know the answer to that particular problem, especially when people can get a show from Broadway and duplicate it. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Do you find it easy to let go of your work on opening night and entrust it to the company? Yeah, I I do. Um, no, I'm less nervous than I used to be. I mean, I, it was terrible for a while. I would literally be feeling like I was going to throw up or what have you. I couldn't even bear to watch it. And I, I do tend to leave the actors to do it. I mean, I, even though they don't say it publicly, I know a lot of actors don't like that well this is what they say to me don't like those directors who come to every performance or every second performance and give give notes they just can't stand it and I I mean I think I've got a with respect to low or a high boredom threshold well you know it's it's like I have great friends who've been resident directors as much as I would really, really like, and I think they do a brilliant job, and as much as I would really like the gig, I couldn't do it because I don't think I could sit through it all those times, you know? Really, when I first started directing, and brilliant people do it, I'm not knocking anyone who does it, but um, I got flown to Sydney to meet um, the writer of 42nd Street. Mark Bramble. Mark Bramble, that's right. He's the Barnum guy, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So he had done Barnum in London, and I did this little circus in London called Circus Senso, which he came to see when he was doing Barnum. I didn't know that. But anyhow, so I'm sitting there and having the interview, and I'm thinking, oh, this will be good, and, you know, I'll get to work on a big show like that and get paid every week, and, wow, this would be great. And... uh, he says to me, oh, did you do that show Circus Senso? And, of course, I say, oh, yes, I did. And he said, I love that show, but you're not getting this job. He said, I don't want... I'm not... This sounds like a criticism of whoever was doing it, and this is not the case, but he said, I don't want someone who's thinking they're going to be innovative and make this better than it is or change it. I want someone who's going to make it exactly the way it is now in two years' time. Thank you very much. <laughs> wow. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it was. Did it you was. like working in the circus genre? Because you did quite a bit of circus. Yeah, I did. I did do, which was very odd because what would I know about it? But I worked at the fabulous, fabulous Last Laugh in Melbourne and I did three shows there. Um that ran like a year each. We would do a show six times a week for a year on that tiny stage, I can't believe, with all these production values and illusions and pop music and what have you. And um, it was while I was doing that, I got asked, did I want to, would I like to direct Circus Oz? And I thought, oh, I don't know. And so anyhow, I said, oh, you know, yes, I'll do it. And, of course, I didn't really think about it too much. And, of course, when I arrived, because it was 
and I love Circus Oz, but because it was a collective and everything was done through the collective and they'd never had a, to my knowledge, had a director before, the first time was really tough. I mean, I was terrified and every single thing I would do, there would be people rolling their eyes and, you know, are you going to do that, are you? It was all like that business. Um, So that was sort of tough and, you know, and to a large degree, I didn't know what I was doing. I'd been used to doing these, what they called eccentric spectacles at the last laugh. And, but anyhow, I did come back to Circus Oz, I think, three or four times, so there must have been some level of it being okay. I did uh, the Los Angeles Olympic Games and I did um, Edinburgh and I did another one, I think, Australian tour. Um, And... The New York show, although I didn't go to New York with it. Um, so, you know, and by by its nature, I think circus is difficult to direct. You know, there's the constant danger. There's, you know, someone's going to fall from that or whatever. There's the constant thing of injury and all of that where you can't be so totally, unless... Your Cirque du Soleil, you can't be so totally locked into your concept because that person's going to be off that night, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, I did the, a couple of seasons of uh, Flying Fruit Fly Circus. I did Circus Senso in London. I did... Um, my best thing, really, was I did a show called Empire uh, for um, the amazing Ross Mollison... Uh, and that played in Tokyo and Montreal and lots of other places I got to go to. And I that show had already opened when I was asked to come in and do it. And within reason, I was given a pretty free reign. So I did remodel the show or re-envisage it or whatever you want to call it. And that had some incredible performers in it. And um, I'm sort of starting to work on another circus thing now um, but it's more about a certain historical performer that um, this new show I want to create um, but yeah so it, that was an interesting little um, side hustle you know well you've got to be uh, versatile don't you you've got to yeah you do take on the gigs you do it's it's very interesting because circus is very, what's the word? Trendy is not the word, but you know what I mean. It's in the zeitgeist, and that was almost, hey, have we had enough circus? You know, you've really got to be great. And I think there are some great people like Circa and um, uh, a few other companies that um, are turning it on its head. Um, but when I started doing circus and cabaret, for that matter, not the show cabaret, but cabaret performers, the form, form, (laughs) I was actually dropped from a famous agency because they thought what I was doing wasn't, it was really not legit. Now you couldn't get more legit, but then it it was really considered a bit off, um, not really mainstream. Um, and And a lot of, that's really how I came to be in Melbourne, through great people like the late John Pinder, 
who um, I had my little theatre company in Wagga and uh, I never met him and I used to get the bus from Wagga to Melbourne to see the work of, say, people like the late Nigel Triffitt, for example. But I didn't really know any of those people. But John Pinder sort of knew about me and rang me up and said, oh, it's John Pinder here from The Last Love. I'm thinking, oh, my God, it's John Pinder from The Last Love. He said, wondering if you'd like to do a show here. I'm thinking, oh, my God. And I said, oh, yes, you know, I'd love to. And he said, um, all right, uh, can you come to Melbourne? And I said, oh, like when? He said, oh, now. Just go out to the airport now. <laughs> and so that's what he was like, you know. And I did go out to the airport and got on a plane and met him and, you know, his terrifying big personality. But ended up doing these great shows with him. And those shows were a fusion of circus and pop music and cabaret and review. visuals and review and all of that, all of that stuff. And so it was a great place. And that's when I ended up moving here, really, because I really... I mean, I've never got that much... Once Wilton Morley, you know, went left the country under a cloud, I never really got that much work in Sydney. I did Darlinghurst Nights for the Sydney Theatre Company and really not a lot else, um, just some little things. And uh, whereas I kept on being asked to do things in Melbourne and at that time it was in the 80s like into the 90s that's when I used to be called ubiquitous <laughs> uh, and there was a there was a platform here to people got into you making up shows you know I did this little show uh, I only want to be with you the Dusty Springfield show and it was not the big Dusty musical but it was a show that was Wendy Stapleton. It was, and that show, as it was, ran on and off for five years. But that was a show, really, where I was asked to do it, and it was really because you know I'd been under the influence of something, listening to Dusty Springfield music, and thought this would be great. She's very theatrical, be a great show to do. And someone says to you, "Oh yes, we'll do that." You know, so there was that thing, there was The Last Laugh and the Comedy Club and all these great venues that were about making up shows. They weren't, they didn't want scripts, they wanted original concepts and that great Melbourne fusion thing that at that time no one else was doing. So it was really great and I don't know whether... I, I really don't know. I'm sure we got paid, but I don't know whether we all paid that much. I remember once I came down to see... I was still in Sydney, really, and came down to see one of the shows at The Last Laugh for a weekend to give notes and maybe put someone new into the show. I can't remember. and I could, But I can remember the management saying, oh, what what do you need? And I said, oh, what do you say? Well, you know, do you want, like... A couple of new pairs of jeans or something. <laughs> so I don't know whether we were paid in denim or what. Yeah, that's right. Are you superstitious in the theatre? No. No, not at all? You know, um, whistling backstage? Or... No. 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 No, I suppose if something bad happened, I would think, oh, that's why it happened. I should never have done that. No, I respect if someone is. Um, but I haven't actually really worked with 
many people who do that. I don't know what you do, turn around three times and da da da. Swear, I think, and be invited. No, I mean, I think I'm superstitious in the sense of sometimes I think, oh my God, why did you let that management talk you into using that person? You knew when you met them it was going to be not good. Yes. You know? Yeah, but of course, it's, that's not, you know, I think that's not always possible. So imagine if say, yes, we're going to do it, Terence, but you're going to have this person because that's who we want, you know. And I think that happens more time. Maybe not with the, you know, A-list directors. I don't know, but um, I'm told it happens quite a lot still, you know. Um, and sometimes that doesn't work, mm. you know. Do you read reviews? Um I don't keep them. I don't have a, you know... A scrapbook. No, a scrapbook. <laughs> so it's so funny, doesn't it? Don't, I, um, I do, but it's only those bad ones that hurt you. The rest you don't, you know. I mean, you and in a way you have to bite that off because if, you know, you can't get a big head about that one saying, oh, what a brilliant production because the next week someone's saying what an incredible, you know disaster that is so you, you, yeah no I don't I mean that whole world's changed now anyway I mean, they're online you, now yeah and there were and they're all gone well they're there but they used to be great writers reviews they don't well, barely exist in this country anymore and their space the editor sort of yeah you, cuts you, into it yeah so you can't you know take too much um, notice of that I don't think what about a favourite part of the process? Do you, for you, was it auditions? Is it, is it zits probe? Is it final oh, I, night? I, I love all those things. I love um, well, I don't like the final night if it's a flop and it's closing, um, but I do like the auditions, and I do as much as possible like to be fair, although it's it's always odd how someone perceives you because there was one particular actor who auditioned for something and every time I'd see him in Melbourne he's put his nose in the air and standing right next to me and not talk to me and I said to him why is that person being like that said oh because you were just such a bastard at those auditions and I thought was I I, I, um but I love the auditions and I love because I think I said before that's when it really comes alive for me and where you can think, oh, they'd be so great. And often I, I, I do like casting people who are a little bit off-centre, I guess. I guess they're my favourites in a way. Trying to recognise the potential and then, then working on yeah, that. Yeah, or, or thinking, oh, that'd be great for them to... They, I can see they'd be so great playing this sort of role, you know. Um, I think it's different with sort of younger people because they're not proven yet, but... Um, you know, I, I, there are people that I've just loved forever, like, you know, Genevieve Lemon, you know, Valerie Bader. These are, you know, I could go on. Just great people who, um, you know, really special to me. Um, and I, I think as well, you get to meet, when we were talking about that ageist thing, because I've started meeting some people in Melbourne who I just think is extraordinary and I think, my God, why isn't that that person, why, why aren't they doing anything, you know? Yeah. 
and it's because they're 65 or something. Yeah. So we, we've got a long way to go yet before... Because I think um, we seem to be extremely concerned, only rightly so, about all sorts of other people who we say are underrepresented on our stages or on our screens. But I don't know whether people of a certain age are part of that. I, I don't see many examples of that at all. And really, if you're, a, if you're a woman of a certain age, there are really, and I'm not saying who these people are, but there are really only two or three women in the entire country that get those roles. And it's the truth, yeah. you know. So I think that must be extremely disheartening for certain people. Or, you know, not everyone wants to play a granny or the nosy neighbour next door. They don't. And so I think all of that's very interesting. And I still, I'm I'm sure there are people that are into this, but I'm sure that's um, a next frontier for for people to get... um, active about I mean I um, I find one thing that's quite interesting and I talk to a lot of people about is that companies that are subsidised to a large degree even though they've got to be I guess commercially run but they are subsidised and they do have big staffs and they ask for submissions from artists and I'm not the only person saying this at the moment it's a very popular topic of conversation you don't ever hear from them. Don't they have a rote letter that says, hey, thanks for your project, but it's not for us? Basic manners. Basic manners. Mm-hmm. When they ask a lot of you and you put together videos and all sorts of stuff of Which your work. Weeks. Exactly. And they don't literally announce their season and don't ever bother to get back to you. And to me, a company that boasts about their inclusiveness and their treating artists correctly, that is one area that needs to be looked at because it is so disheartening and it's a very common... Shut up, Terence, but it's a very common topic of conversation with people, yeah. you know, that... Uh, I mean, I don't do those things very often, but if one does do them, you're expecting some sort of response, probably a no, but nonetheless, it's... It should be because we're we're all inclusive now, and we are. It's all about the artist, etc. You know. Yeah. Hmm. Well, Terence, thank you for your story and your time. Ah, my pleasure. I've had a ball talking to you. Good. Um, you've got lots of balls in the air at the moment. Lots of um, well, irons in the fire. Yes. What other well, cliches I, can I think of? Yeah, that, I'm, um, I'm I'm trying to have that. I've got my little list of things that I'm trying to do, and. Um, you know, one can only cross fingers and hope they happen. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Do look out for Terence's shows, Mrs Prime Minister and I Can Jump Puddles when they appear at a theatre near you. He is one of our essential artists and haven't we been richer for the work he has made? My guest in this episode, Terence O'Connell. Thanks for joining us in this episode. Don't forget, you can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast over the past four years by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, 
stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.